The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Our first reading is from the second epistle to the Corinthians. Let us listen to God's word. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we also have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Our second lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew. Let us listen to God's word. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of God, for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join us now for the conclusion of our summer sermon series, Practices of Faith and Sanity. Welcome Dr. Jenkins, who shares this week's message, When Life is Spent on Fragile Things, The Practice of Grace. Before I begin, I want to say how much I have uh, enjoyed and appreciated being with you these six weeks here in New York, and I want to thank uh, all the folks in the congregation, uh, the staff, and uh, so many of you for just making us feel so at home. Thank you uh, so much. One of my favorite writers, Neil Gaiman, tells the story of waking up one morning with a sentence rattling around in his head. It must have been left over from a dream, he thought, but he had no idea what the sentence meant. He got up out of bed and he wrote it down. And here's the sentence. I think I would rather recollect a life misspent on fragile things than spent avoiding moral debt. It's a good sentence. It's both mystifying and, and sort of clear at the same time. Let me repeat it. I think I would rather recollect a life 
misspent on fragile things than spent avoiding moral debt. The sentence, of course, would make perfect sense and the flow of meaning would be uninterrupted except for one word, misspent. It makes me wonder if the sentence wasn't a fragment of an argument Gaiman was having in his dream. Maybe he was confronted by someone in the dream who argued that he was misspending his life in his vocation. Misspent usually means wasted or squandered or poorly invested. The phrase misspent youth is a familiar one, indicates a certain lack of wisdom on the part of someone who wasted far too much time planning fraternity bashes instead of studying. I wonder if perhaps Gaiman isn't throwing the word back at the person in his dream. Gaiman, as a writer, knows his way around irony. Maybe what we see here is something like the irony of the Gospels, the account, the uh, apparent contradiction of grace and forgiveness. We see all the way through the Sermon on the Mount and um, the parables of Jesus. Maybe misspent is in the eye of the beholder. And maybe Gaiman is making a point about how we incur moral indebtedness and how crucial it is for our relationships. A pastor I once knew took me to lunch one day. This is a long time ago. He, um, he seemed intent on impressing me. I was a young professor and I pretty much lived on black bean tacos in those days. So any restaurant that used a tablecloth would have been impressive to me. When he wheeled into the drive of the seminary to drop me off after lunch, he wanted me to know that he had a meeting downtown with someone really important. I don't remember who they were, but I remember their name was meant to impress me. And then he said, you know, if you are the senior pastor of a leadership church like mine, that's the kind of thing you should spend your time doing. I don't have the luxury in my calendar of sitting around in a hospital room holding someone's hand all day. And off he went in a cloud of impressive exhaust fumes. Climbing out of his car, I felt such a muddle of conflicting emotions. I know I would never have disputed the idea that various church staff members should have diverse responsibility. That wasn't it. And I knew that his congregation had a full-time associate whose entire vocation was to provide pastoral care and oversee pastoral care in that congregation. That makes perfect sense. But there was something in my colleague's tone that didn't feel right. It wasn't that another staff member took the lead on pastoral care. That was, that was a different issue altogether. The pastor colleague was telling me that such care wasn't important enough for him. Okay, now I'm going to confess right now that I felt a sort of vocational and personal self-righteousness after my conversation with the pastor. 
I know I was climbing right up onto the judge's bench when I crawled out of his car. And even writing the sermon this week, I kept having to self-edit my judgment of my pastoral colleague, reminding myself that my place is at the witness bar, not on the seat of the judge. In a way, I really should appreciate his honesty. He was frank enough to say what I'm sure a lot of other people have thought, to spend time with the sick and especially with the dying seems to some people a bad investment, a misspending of their time and energy. In fact, I think you could, you could stretch it. Spending your life taking care of human beings would be in the same mindset a misspending of life. These are such fragile things, such ephemeral things, these frail human lives. Will Williman, former Methodist bishop and once dean of Duke University Chapel, in a commencement address at Princeton Seminary, once told his audience of seminary graduates that he had come to them that day to reveal at long last why their degree program had forced them to learn dead languages like Koine Greek and ancient Hebrew. After hours and hours and hours of drudgery spent deciphering, memorizing, declining, and translating, he told them the real purpose of this tedious scholarly work was not intended to make them proficient in reading the Old and New Testaments. The real purpose of all that time spent pouring over obscure biblical languages was to teach them patience so that they would never, ever begrudge spending a whole afternoon or whatever time was needed listening to the same story they had already heard five times before from someone whose memory was so frail they'd never even remember that the pastor had come by. To will, fragile things are worth our investment of life. And as author Neil Gaiman writes, commenting on his dream sentence, there are so many fragile things after all. People break so easily, and so do dreams and hearts. There are so many fragile things. St. Paul wrote his most mystical reflections in his second letter to the Corinthians. Even until this day, Paul writes, when Moses is read to us, there is a kind of veil covering our hearts. But when we turn to the Lord, that veil is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with open faces beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror are changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. It would take a thousand years 
of Christian mysticism to say anything half as profound as these words from St. Paul. And we all, with open faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, are changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the ultimate promise of our faith. Not that we merely survive forever in some form or the other after death, but that we may enter into eternity, an eternal quality of life here and now. I think I mentioned this quote to you last week, but as the presbyter of Lyon, St. Irenaeus, would say about a century after St. Paul, the glory of the Lord is a human life fully lived. And of course, St. Paul goes even further to say even more because we have received God's grace and because grace has drawn us toward the God who promises, as Anne Lamott says, to meet us where we are but not to leave us where he found us. We renounce, we renounce dishonesty, refusing to walk or to trade in deceit or to entertain lies, but to deal in truthfulness that is apparent to the consciences of others. I remember a conversation that your pastor, Scott, and I had, I guess it was a little over a year ago, about the seriousness of the baptismal vows we asked parents to take on behalf of their children. In just the past few years, there have been times when it felt as though we were asking people to risk their lives for the sake of their souls. We are asking questions of great moral seriousness in the midst of a time when deceit has become commonplace in the highest seats of power. You know that question. Do you renounce the devil and his ways, we ask. Standing before the waters of initiation into this very peculiar community, we ask, and we ask with a straight face and complete seriousness, will you reject the lies, the falsehoods, the deceit, and the deceitful practices, the cynicism of this world, will you? There have been times in recent years when I, for one, have felt myself transported back to that first century world in which St. Paul, with a straight face and complete seriousness, calls the powers that seek to charm us the gods of this world. I'm not given much to mythological language, I will tell you, but I think Paul is right. The gods, the powers and principalities that will use all sorts of devices to blind us, to convince us to value those things that have no lasting value, to sacrifice even those we love most on unholy altars, to spend our lives amassing that which distracts us from all the fragile things for which Christ came into the world. 
we have this treasure, St. Paul writes. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, in fragile jars of clay, so that we may comprehend that the excellency of power is of God and not in the gods of this world. Clay pots, like the kind we find shattered in archaeological digs. Clay pots, such as the mortal remains that we lay in the ground after the breath of life has left them. Broken, brittle, cracked, shattered clay jars. God has chosen the most fragile things to hold his glory. And these are the very things that the gods of this world despise. What a waste of time for my old friend, Father Paul Scaglione from New Jersey, to misspend the prime years of his ministry sitting beside people in hospice who were already well on their way to the grave. For hours he listened to their stories, stories nobody else would ever hear. He prayed with them. He held them close. He even held their hands as they drew their last breaths. What could they do for him? How could this activity benefit his career? All of that time misspent on people who would be dead soon. Who would ever know? What a waste, said a woman I once knew to me. What a waste for that promising young man she knew to become a public high school teacher. Unless, of course, he is doing it for a year or two to burnish his resume to advance a more prosperous career goal. He is so foolish, she said. He isn't going to change the state of education. At best, he will touch a few lives here and there. And then what? A pension supplemented by Social Security? What a loser, scoffs the gods of this age. What a waste for a daughter or a son to visit day after day a parent who no longer remembers who they are. What a waste for an ICU nurse serving in a hospital struggling to save her neighbors from a deadly virus while her neighbors whisper behind her back that she is in on some kind of massive hoax. And of course, according to the gods of this age, what foolishness for a man like Jesus, a born leader, able to communicate complex ideas in such memorable ways to misspend his life, teaching that rabble of nobodies, only to end up himself a confirmed failure, betrayed, abandoned, rejected, arrested, condemned, and executed as a criminal. He could have had the world at his feet. I wonder what St. Paul was thinking when he said, we are troubled on every side, yet not discouraged, perplexed, but not in despair. I think a lot of us have felt that way. We have our own share, Paul says, in the dying of the Lord Jesus. You hear that? We, we are chumps too in the eyes of the gods of this world, just like Jesus. And then he continues, but by so doing, we also see emerging in ourselves in the life of Jesus. 
Paul isn't saying that spending our lives on fragile things is a lark. This is not a path to be taken lightly. I heard a story, I wish I could remember where I heard it now. It's about a high school teacher. It happened that it was the day before a long holiday. The teacher, realizing that her students, teenagers, were not likely to produce any really meaningful work that day, needed a little project to keep them from getting into mischief. So, she told them to take out a sheet of paper and to make a list of every person in the class, and, and she told them, beside each person's name, write down what quality or characteristic or gift you most admire in that person. To her surprise, after an initial buzz, the class got very quiet. As they bent over their papers, thinking and writing, I am sure this teacher was thinking to herself, by golly, this activity is a keeper. At the end of the exercise, she took up all the papers, she took them home, and carefully she cut out each statement about each student, and on a page dedicated to each student, she pasted the statements their classmates had made about them. When she had finished, she had 30 separate sheets, one for each student in her class, filled with the qualities, the characteristics, the gifts their classmates most admired in them. On the last day of the semester, she reminded the students about their exercise and she handed these sheets out to the students. Years later, as she tells the story, she received a call from the mother of one of the kids in that class. The mother said that her son had been killed in action in Afghanistan. The mom wanted the teacher to know that she was her son's favorite teacher and she thought it would had meant a lot to her son if she could come to his memorial service. Of course, the teacher came. After the graveside service, the mother approached the teacher. She said, I have something to share with you. My son could only take a very few items with him when he went out on patrol. And with these words, she began to unfold a crumpled, soiled piece of paper, ragged and torn around the edges. It's clear it had been unfolded and refolded often. My son never went anywhere without this little piece of paper from your class. It was with him when he was killed. As the two women stood there talking, two of this young man's friends, also former classmates, overheard the conversation. From her purse, a young woman pulled out her page. And from his wallet, a young man unfolded his. A little exercise to keep a rowdy class of teenagers busy had become a precious event of grace in their lives. Someone took the time to allow these young people to be revealed to themselves, to know they were appreciated by others. Someone, by the way, misspent a class period so that these young people could have a mirror held up to themselves and could see 
who they were in the eyes of their peers. St. Paul says, We all, with open faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being changed into the same image, glory to glory, by the Spirit of the Lord. I think I would rather recollect a life misspent on fragile things. That's what Gaiman said. Me too. How about you? Some of the most satisfied craftspeople I've ever known work in clay. Uh, as you know, I don't. I'm a painter. But I, I find it fascinating how they work. Building something at once so beautiful and so fragile. Now, we've collected a number of their pots and vases over the years and bowls. And I'm always mindful of the fact when we place things in them that they made them. They made them personally. They crafted them. And there's something of who they are in every one of these beautiful pieces. They would tell you that. We hold in our fragile selves the wonder and glory of God. Love, forgiveness, grace. And all we're meant to do is share it. To look around us at all the other fragile things and all the fragile people and to love them as we have been loved. And now may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen.